Entering the Freedom Hut. The liberal media is at it again. They're deciding that they're going to go after Trump on the Trump Tower meeting. They're saying foreign interference. Trump said it's okay. They're in full meltdown over that. We'll get into that and much more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country... Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. You want that kind of interference in our elections? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. If I thought there was something wrong, I'd go maybe to the FBI. If I thought there was something wrong. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Oh, man, here we go. Back to the old bag of tricks here for the Democrats, for the libs. Let's talk about foreign interference in our elections again. Oh, gosh. The Trump Tower meeting where no information of any worth or any consequence was exchanged. They're looking for something, anything now to revive the fortunes of the hashtag resistance after the flop of the Mueller report. Mueller's pathetic press conference to try to breathe new life into the efforts to impeach Trump. The Democrats know that impeachment comes with risks. They're trying to make it less risky by trashing Trump with the same old narratives that they've used in the past, the same old nonsense. It's just ridiculous. And here they are asking the president, George Stephanopoulos of ABC News, little Clinton operative, sitting or actually standing there. We'll get into that later. Asking the president of the United States, are you okay with that foreign interference? Let's think this through for a second, shall we? You're in a presidential campaign. There's opposition research coming in all over the place. People are saying all kinds of things. You're hearing rumors all over. And if someone, remember, he wasn't president when this happened. He was just a campaign for president. And someone says they've got really, really critical information about your opponent that could change the course of the race. You're going to say, no, sorry, I don't, I don't like where the information is coming from. Is that realistic? Does anyone think that would, that would really wash? That would be the case? This is silly. What if they sent an email to the president? What if somebody got Trump's phone number and sent a text message? Hey, here's what you need to know. He opens his phone. There it is. He's supposed to say, ah, my eyes. I, I have to pretend that I forget this. I can never use this really valuable information that I have. Or maybe it's not valuable. But you're supposed to what? Run away, cry, say that you never wanted to see this in the first place? This is absurd. This is this is patently absurd. Now, that's just on its own. This this new standard of, oh, maybe Hillary, I've got information that proves that Hillary Clinton's a criminal. But no, oh, no, don't give that to me. It's from a foreign government. And this is America. We don't do that, sir. Meanwhile, the Clinton campaign sent operatives to Ukraine to try to dig up dirt on Trump. But that's not even the biggest effort of foreign interference that they were engaged in. Here's the problem for the libs, for the Democrats. Enough people have read the reports now, understand what's going on, that when libs yell foreign interference, we yell back dossier. 
Here's the fundamental problem, the fundamental question that they cannot answer. How are we supposed to pretend that they care, the libs care about foreign interference in the election when officially and as a matter of record, not a theory, not something that, you know, maybe kind of sort of, we don't know yet, as a matter of public record that all sides agree on the facts about the DNC, on behalf of the Hillary Clinton campaign, hired a law firm that hired a foreign intelligence operative, a foreigner, who was hired specifically because of his connections to Russians and time working on Russia. And he went around and spoke to, and you could see it in the dossier, Russian government officials who gave him anti-Trump information most likely disinformation. And then he was used by the DNC and their law firm, Perkins Coy, to launder that information, give it the veneer of credibility, run with it to the American journalist cadre, the journos, and give it to the FBI and the DOJ. And they ran with it and even took it to the FISA court and presented it as real. Where's the real foreign influence in the election in this situation, my friends? Who's really using foreigners to try to change the results of the election, to try to destroy political opponents? Trump's team, unbeknownst to Trump, including Manafort and Cohen and Trump Jr., sat down to have a meeting with a lady who said that she had really important information from Russia's prosecutor. Could have been information about Hillary Clinton being a criminal because Hillary Clinton is a criminal. What's the what's the the big problem? This this sanctimony about how oh it's so unpatriotic. If you're going to tell me that taking that meeting is unpatriotic, and then you're going to mumble mumble, you know, misdirect misdirect about the dossier and and the role of Christopher Steele and all of his Russian subsources, including Russian government officials, in an active measures campaign against Trump and against his people. You have no credibility. You're a hack. But the media is still, they're still just trying to force feed this to the American people. Oh, just don't ignore what we know. Just believe what we say. Just take our word for it. Take our version of these facts as all you need to know. This is just madness. It's madness what they're doing. But Trump derangement syndrome forces or induces this kind of mania. Anything that they can do to take down Trump to stop him from four more years, they think is justified. A lot of them, I believe, could not, and I mean CNN and the Washington Post and a lot of prominent Democrats, cannot psychologically handle four more years of Trump. They, they will be broken if they have not already been broken. And so whatever they have to do to stop him, they think is inherently justified. I want an answer. I want somebody who is prominent in the Democratic Party. I want some of the, the masses of all these journals running around. How is the Steele dossier, with all of its Russian sources, which was successfully used against Trump, brought to the FISA court, unverified, unvetted, raw intelligence information, the DNC specifically went after somebody who had sources in Russia. How is that not foreign interference in our election? A foreigner talking to foreigners, creating 
compromise, compromising information on Trump and running it to our own intelligence community, as well as all the journals that want to take Trump down. How is that not for because it was paid for? Because he was able to convince the clowns at the FBI that this was legit? That's not an answer. I want an answer or else I don't want to hear about the Trump Tower meeting from any of these losers ever again. It's meaningless. They have no standards other than Trump derangement, and that's not a standard. We're just getting started here. I'll be right back. That's not the right answer. If a foreign government comes to you as a uh, public official and offers to help your campaign, giving you anything of value, whether it be money or information on your opponent, the, the right answer is no. And um, I've been consistent about that, I think. Christopher Ray's statement is the correct statement, and I'm hoping some of my Democratic colleagues will take more seriously the fact that Christopher Steele was a foreign agent paid for by the Democratic Party. Okay, folks, here's where I got to tell you that uh, Lindsey Graham is wrong. I disagree with Lindsey Graham. Foreign government comes to you and says they have really important information. The right answer is no. That may sound really, you you know, you could pound your chest on that and say see look at how great we are and you know keeping the american election just about americans or whatever which is also a whole other conversation we've got a global media environment we have an internet that's global there's information flowing all the time everywhere are we supposed to now track down where the information comes from constantly if a president sees a news story from a foreign country a former country's news service that's state news are they not allowed to use that information what if it what if it's then picked up by other news organizations but the origin of it is the state news service of some other country. They're not allowed to use that. That would be a contribution in a sense, wouldn't it? This is why these rules are ridiculous. And this formulation is just wrong. Uh, and I, I think, you know, Lin, look, Lindsey Graham, I, I think he's a I think he's an honorable guy and a well-intentioned guy. I don't think he's I don't I don't think he's that wise. And I think that he's wrong on stuff. And I think he's wrong on this. Um, here, here's let, let's play the scenario game. They keep saying, okay, because really they create all this Russia hysteria stuff, but let's say it's not Russia. Let's say it's some other country. Let's say it's someone else. All right. The Russian uh, government is one thing. Let's say the French government comes forward and says, you know what? We've got information for you. Um, you know, Hillary, in the last election, you know, Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill Clinton, uh, sexually assaulted. I'm just, this is a scenario. This is a, a hypothetical. But I'm just, Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill Clinton, sexually assaulted a young girl in France. And, you know, we have real evidence that's come forward. And we, you know, we have a real process. But, you know, you should know that this is what happened. And the French government, you know, the, the French minister of, remember, it was the Russian senior lawyer. I forget what the guy's title was. The Veselinskaya said she represented. Uh, sort of the senior prosecutor. Well, what if the the French Minister of Justice said, you know, we've got we've got reason to believe that Bill Clinton assaulted a young girl, and we wanted you to know that. We think the American people should know that. Does anybody want to sound like a total moron and tell me, oh, you can't use that information? Stop. That's a that's a campaign contribution right there. This is idiocy. The moment you take this standard they say they're setting up and you apply it more generally and, and try to make it universally applicable, not just in this Russia collusion hysteria, it all falls apart. And when you add to this the very real prospect 
that Hillary Clinton may have taken a bribe, or her husband may have taken a bribe from Russia. What if Veselnitskaya is like, look, here's the information. You know, Hillary, there was a meeting, it was arranged, Bill Clinton got a check for $500,000 from a Russian bank to give a speech. No one gets paid a half million dollars for a speech, this is insane. Uh, but his wife was Secretary of State at the time, and then we had this agreement through an intermediary that Hillary was going to, you know, desanction these fo- the following Russians or something like that. What if that had happened? That could have happened. That's not a crazy scenario at all. I mean, Hillary and Bill Clinton are wildly corrupt, and the media pretending they weren't is one of the greatest knocks on their credibility that you could point to. It's laughable. And the Clinton Foundation is collapsing. No one cares about the Clinton Foundation anymore because it was all a front for influence peddling and access selling, pretending to be a charity. It was a pass-through for the Clinton brand and paying for their lifestyle and paying for their private jets and essentially creating a government in exile for the Clintons. And the media acted like, oh, oh, it's just a charity. There's nothing wrong here. Nothing wrong that's going on at all. Absolute nonsense. Total and complete nonsense. But let's say that there was information that there was a, a real quid pro quo, you know, what for what corruption, and the Russians had it, and they were going to give it to Trump. You could say, well, Buck, he has to take it to the FBI. Okay, but is he still not allowed to use the information? Does he have to wait to see if the FBI decides to bring charges or not? This is opposition research. This is, well, you know, what, what's fair is fair. What information you have is the information you have. Are, 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 is the expectation now that if a foreign government had information about criminal activity or corruption of a U.S. political candidate, that the opponent of that candidate is supposed to sit on it and not say anything because it comes from a foreign source? Why? If it's true, why would you do that? These rules that they're pretending to believe in don't make any sense. They don't make any sense. You got all these DC types that want to sound like, oh, you know, because this is an opportunity to do a lot of, you know, virtue signaling about what a patriot you are. And I'm oh, I would never take foreign information for blah, blah. Yeah, right, sure. People, journalists take on. Okay, here's another. For, for those who are saying, no, no, Buck, you don't get it. You don't take. You don't take information from foreign government and use it against your political... Okay, let's say the foreign government... Let's just move around some of the pieces that are already on the chessboard here. So, Russian government source tells an American journalist... Oh, this is kind of like the dossier, isn't it? Russian government source tells an American journalist, hey, you know, it turns out that uh, you know Hillary got, got paid off $10 million in an unmarked account for her and Bill to change their stance on Uranium One. I mean, just straight, illegal as it gets, corruption. Right? A straight-up payoff. Tells that journalist. That journalist then contacts somebody in the Trump campaign and says, yeah, I've got word from this. This looks real. I've got word from this Russian source that uh, the Russian government prosecutor is saying that, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton took all this money and, you know, it looks real. Is that campaign person because the information comes through an American source as an intermediary but it's originally Russian do they have an obligation to not do anything with it oh it's okay if it goes through a pass through guess what that makes it pretty easy to get the information from any foreign government to any campaign official just put it through a journalist as a pass through this is ridiculous it's it does not hold together this is all narrative it's all story building 
from the anti-Trump resistance. When you poke at this, it falls apart. And if you thought for one second that they intended to uh, live by their own rules, remember Adam Schiff, one of the most dishonest and sanctimonious of all the anti-Trumpers in the Congress. Remember what happened when he had uh, Russian comedians Vladimir uh, Kizetsov and Alexei Stolyarov call him up pretending to have information? We have the audio. Let's listen. What do Democrats do? I mean, what do they really do when they think they might get information from a foreign source that's damaging to their political opponents? Play clip five. I know that you work for investigation regarding Trump and Russian government. Yes. We know some important information about that. Uh, and that, uh, that uh, is documented as well in materials you want to provide to us? Yes. So Buseva met with Trump uh, in, in uh, New York at some point after the 2013 Miss Universe pageant? Absolutely. And she got uh, compromising materials on Trump after their uh, short relations. Okay. And, and what's the nature of the compromise? Well, there were pictures of naked Trump. Mm-hmm. And so Putin was made aware uh, of the the availability of the compromising material? Yes, of course. Uh, Buzova shared those materials with uh, Sobchak, and Sobchak shares those materials with uh, Putin because she's a goddaughter of Putin, and Putin decided to press on Trump. Does it sound like Adam Schiff's like, whoa, whoa, hey, I don't want any of this. Compromat, the word he used there, compromising information on Trump. I don't want to hear about any of this. It's not the kind of stuff that we talk about here. This is America. We don't do that stuff. We don't. Of course not. He wants to know all about it. Oh, yeah, sure. Maybe he'd call the FBI. Does anyone think that he wouldn't also call the Washington Post right after that if he thought this was real and tell them that he's got a great story for them and they just have to sort of dig a little bit or he'll point them in the right direction? Folks, we're not all, we're not all little kids here. We know how this game in politics is played. The Democrats play it dirtier than anybody else. They play without principles. They play without honor. And so when they turn around, as they're doing today, and try to wag a finger and scold everybody on the other side, the Republicans and Trump, for not playing according to their own constantly changing and murky and bizarre rules, you know what we should do? Ignore them. Because they're full of it. Some also defending uh, the president as well, including uh, Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, instead making it, pointing at Hillary Clinton and her effort to try to get dirt on the Russia and the uh, and the Trump campaign by hiring the opposition research firm Fusion GPS, which of course uh, contracted with Christopher Steele, the former British agent, to try to look into potential ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. But those two situations not entirely synonymous. Uh, get Podesta emails and leak those out. Those that's much different uh, than what was happening with the Steele situation with the Steele dossier. But nevertheless, you're hearing Republicans make that case as a lot of them try to defend what the president is doing. Right. But but these two things, the dossier and what Trump is talking about here, these two things are not the same. Yeah, they're not the exact same, you idiots, but they're pretty darn close. But this is a classic CNN thing. This is this is what you hear over there all the time. They'll they'll say something like it's a really profound statement. And when you think about it, it's one of the dumbest things you've ever heard. Well, the dossier and what happened here with the Trump campaign 
and meeting at Trump at uh, Trump Tower, it's not the same. Right. But the same principle should be involved. The same standards should be applied. I really wonder, is CNN staffing itself at the most senior levels with people who are just not all that bright or who are so dishonest but in love with their own image and, and their uh, overstuffed paychecks that they're willing to look stupid in front of smart and honest people and not care? I don't have an answer. I don't know which it is right now. There is no good answer to the question, why does... Why do the uh, foreign efforts of the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign not get not get called foreign interference? But the Trump campaign taking a meeting where there was no interference. Remember, that's another important uh, that's another important component of this. The Trump meeting was at worst, you could say, an attempted acceptance of information from a foreign source attempted, but without success. That's the worst thing you could say. It had no impact on anything. The Veselin Sky meeting was a nothing, a zero, a nothing burger. The Christopher Steele dossier, relying on a foreign intelligence operative and foreign Russian government sources for that dossier, was a remarkably effective piece of disinformation, the effects we are still living with to this day. So on the one hand, you have something that was effectively meaningless, but has been magnified into a huge problem, which is the Trump Tower meeting and the Trump campaign people talking to Veselnitskaya. On the other hand, you have an incredibly successful disinformation and smear campaign using foreign sources, paying a foreigner, relying on foreign government information. But when you point this out, Libs just they they realize their best defense is to act like this is they're a bunch of total morons. Like they can't understand why these two things being treated incongruously, why these two matters receiving entirely separate treatment, why that's incredibly uh, disturbing. It undermines their whole premise. They're trying to really get this going. Oh, this may be the thing they believe that leads to impeachment right now. You know, now they'll try this, and you know, next week it'll be the firing of Mueller. I'm sorry, or the attempt to fire Mueller by with McGahn. It'll be obstruction again, and the week after that, it'll be they'll just keep coming back to these. And they lose on the issue, they go away, they come back again, and they hope that they can break through. And they'll tire out their opponents. They'll they'll exhaust people like me and you who don't believe their bull. And eventually they'll get their way. Their plan is to just be engaged in relentless propaganda. That's what this is, a relentless propaganda campaign. That's why when they're saying that these are different things, as though that's, yeah, of course they're different things, but the key similarity, foreign information used to the benefit of a presidential campaign that is irrefutable. That is a function of fact. So given that that is an irrefutable function of fact, why doesn't the press have to grapple with this? Why, are, why aren't Democrats being asked all the time to explain this? How is one foreign interference but the other is not? 
Why does the media get so upset about one and not the other? But this is like what I told you yesterday. Bill Clinton got a bigger check for one speech from a Russian bank that was all tied up with oligarchs in the Russian government. He got more money from one country, Russia, for one speech than has been spent at every Trump property combined over the course of two years by 22 different foreign governments. And you see piece after piece about the emoluments clause and how they're buying Trump by spending money on burgers at his hotel. And nothing on how Clinton was selling his wife's office. That's what he was doing. This is extremely serious. Uh, The stark reality, the sad truth, is that we have a president of the United States who's not playing on America's team. He is invited yet again foreign interference in our presidential elections. He said that, and finally admitted in fact, that he sees nothing wrong with collusion, which is in fact what happens when you accept information from a foreign entity. And he said in effect that he'd do it again. He sees no problem with a president of the United States being beholden to a foreign power, even a foreign hostile power, as inevitably one would be if you accepted information and support from a foreign government. What a pile of bull from former Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice. Remember her? Remember remember Susan Rice, everybody? It was a spontaneous reaction to a video. That's what caused the death of uh, four brave Americans that night in Benghazi, Libya. That's right. It was a spontaneous video. It wasn't a terrorist attack. Can't use the T word, not not, you know, right before an election is about to happen and Obama is up on the ballot and he says that General Motors is alive, Bin Laden is dead, and he's basically defeated Al-Qaeda. You can't use the T word. Can't say terrorist. But Susan Rice has come back out here to spread the Democrat talking points. It's extremely serious. A president who is not playing on America's team. What a disgusting, unfair ridiculous, disgraceful thing for a former senior uh, bureaucrat to say. Not playing on America's team. Meanwhile, a lot of America seems to think the president's doing just just a great job of playing on our team. Uh, I'd like to know what Susan Rice thinks about Hillary Clinton accepting foreign information. I mean, this this has now become, you know, this has now become a, a question of, are people just going to actively deny reality or not? And I think the answer is, unfortunately, a lot of them will. Uh, this this Susan Rice little monologue here about the president not playing on America's team because of he's inviting foreign interference. He didn't invite foreign interference in our election. He just said, look, I mean, if somebody's going to tell me they got something to tell me, I'm going to talk to them. How could this even be policed? How could this be adjudicated? Now you have others running around saying, oh, you know, Mark Warner and the Senate and Capitol Hill. Well, you know, we've got to make laws to prevent this from happening where you can get a thing of value information. Okay, so if you meet with a foreigner who who tells you, I I read this really great book on U.S.-Russia relations. You should check it out, too. Is that a thing of value? That might be a valuable insight. Do you have to report that now? Where does this stop and start? Who who makes the decisions about what's valuable information versus what's just hearsay or what's just being passed along uh, 
for no apparent or, or clear reason. Everyone now is supposed to think that Natalia Veselnitskaya in the Trump Tower meeting was uh, because she said that this is part of the Russian government's you know, support for the Trump candidacy, that that was the case. Maybe she was just a wacko. Or maybe she had really, really important information that would have changed the course of American history. That was true. You know, one thing that gets skipped, skipped by with all of this is that the WikiLeaks uh, posted information from, the, from uh, Podesta and the DNC accounts. It was all true. Uh, you know, I mean, it was all real information. It wasn't disinformation. And don't we, I mean, don't we get to factor into this? Then, you know, maybe we should know some of this stuff. Journalists, as a matter of course, as part of their jobs, try to solicit classified and, in fact, illegal information for them to have or possess, all under this idea that they need to inform the American public about it. And they take it upon themselves to decide what should and should not really be classified and you know what the state of America's knowledge about what the government thinks should be secret, is at any given time. But, oh, that's right. A president who's not playing on America's team, she says. And that's why they're they're waiting. You know, they're throwing all this stuff out there. And that's what today, you know what today really was about? It's it's more than anything else. By the way, why was Stephanopoulos standing? Why was that, that little smarmy smurf allowed to do an interview with the president where he's standing and looking down at him. Did the people working with the president not understand what those optics were supposed to be? It's the president of the United States. Little little Stephanopoulos, little mini Stephanopoulos should be sitting. And I was going to say at eye level, you know, he should, be, he should be sitting and looking across the president at about naval level. And that's how the interview should go. He shouldn't be allowed to stand and look down at the president while he's seated. That just strikes me as... Bad optics. I mean, I'm sure the president obviously allowed it to happen, but I, I think that was a mistake. And he asked the question that's been asked so many times before. And there's nothing new about this. This is what they're going to do. Though. They're going to keep, you know, they're going to keep cycling. Yeah, Mike is saying that if Stephanopoulos sat down, he'd be out of frame, one. And two, maybe his, you know, his little legs would be dangling on the end of the chair, which is not, that's not a power look for little Steph. I've seen little Steffi. He's a little tiny fellow. You know, he's also, from what I'm told, not a nice, not a nice guy and a former Clinton operative who's allowed to be a a journalist, an objective journalist. And people still say this stuff. I just want to laugh in their faces. They, they really believe this. You know, they, they think that this is that anybody should believe this, that Stephanopoulos is not playing for. If you think Stephanopoulos is not playing for a team, you're not smart enough to vote. And I wonder if you're smart enough to really like take care of yourself and, you know cook your own food <laughs> i mean I, I really have questions essentially what you're saying there buck i think is really right it, that really wasn't an interview with george stephanopoulos it was an interview with the clintons you know yes basically he's what a clinton it was. operative yep that's what he was and so wh- why do we have to pretend like it's anything other than that and why would the white house uh, go along with this but do, do we know why they allow the strange setup of having papadopoulos standing and looking down at the president when he's in his chair i just thought that was such a weird decision did we see any any scuttlebutt about that? No, I didn't no. see anything. But it's your, I didn't really actually even think about. He just said it. it's a really good point. Yeah, man. Look, when you go back, you look at that video. He's like looking. It's like he's scolding the president of the United States. A little tiny Stephanopoulos. You know, it's like he's he's telling the president that he wants to ride him around the office like a pony, <laughs> which he probably could. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, get a little saddle for little Steffi. Hey, hey, pay me a hundred million dollars because I'm such a good journalist. Hey, but this is what this is what they're doing, folks. They're trying to uh, to you know they're they're trying to create some momentum for impeachment, and so they 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 put out these different versions. Of, they'll say different versions of really the same thing. You know, and they they want to see, oh, what gets traction? What gets people excited? What's going to get people fired up so that they'll go along with our our impeachment efforts here? And, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi is trying to, you know, she's the one who's trying to see what fits here. And because I think she knows that this is risky and her future power and her time as Speaker of the House is at risk, which matters to her more than anything else, based on the decision making here about whether to impeach or not. First, we, let, let's get on to Nancy's response to Trump. Play clip eight. If you make it sound as if it could be a common thing, it is not. And what the president said last night shows clearly, once again, over and over again, that he does not know the difference between right and wrong. And that's probably the nicest thing I can say about him. Because if he doesn't know the difference, it could explain some of his ridiculous behavior. And now to invite further involvement of foreign governments into our election. He's not inviting it. This is just not true. If, if what he says is so bad, can they just accurately refer to what he said and not, not make crap up? Could they just do that? Is, is that asking too much? He wasn't saying, yeah, please, foreign governments of the world, send me all the information you can. But Pelosi has to know that, but she also knows that ultimately this is about the I word. This is about impeachment. It is all political. And because it is so clearly political, you know that what Pelosi is going to do is say, oh, but this is not politics at all. This is classic Nancy gaslighting. Play nine. As we go down this path to seek the truth for the American people and to hold the president accountable it has nothing to do with politics or any campaigns. It has everything to do, if I may, excuse me, answer your question. It has everything to do with patriotism, not partisanship. What we want to do is have a methodical approach to the path that we are on, and this will be included in that. And no one is above the law. Yeah, sure. Who believes Nancy there? This is about getting the truth to the American people. Really? When are they going to have Mueller testify on Capitol Hill? <laughs> Let's just start with that. They want the answer so badly. They want the truth so badly that the single most obvious witness that they could call in this entire thing, they have no interest in calling. Does anybody want to take a stab at how that's possible? Anyone want to try to tell me what's going on with that one? Oh, you mean this is all political and Nancy's a joke and a liar? Oh, yeah, that's right. There we go. Uh, get ready for it, folks. So Iran is doing some bad stuff. Really bad stuff, in fact. Looks like they're going after shipping in the Straits of Hormuz, oil tankers. This could be a big problem. And the U.S. response here, well, we better gauge this appropriately because once they start attacking oil tankers, this can spiral out of control real fast. We'll get to that next. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. 
It is the assessment of the United States government that the Islamic Republic of Iran is responsible for the attacks that occurred in the Gulf of Oman today. This assessment is based on intelligence, the weapons used, the level of expertise needed to execute the operation, recent similar Iranian attacks on shipping, and the fact that no proxy group operating in the area has the resources and proficiency to act with such a high degree of sophistication. This has been a concern for a long time, that the Iranians would escalate the fastest way they they could think of short of a direct attack, say, on Israel or a major terror attack through them on U.S. US embassies or U.S. personnel, and that is to create major global instability in the oil markets through attacks on shipping in the Strait of Hormuz. Now, the Strait of Hormuz is a place that has roughly 25 to 30 percent of the world. Some say 20. It's 22, 30, let's say. Close to a quarter to a third of the world's oil supply shipped through it on, on any given day. So just today, having one tanker, that's a Japanese vessel uh, that was hit with some kind of, it looks like a sea mine or perhaps a torpedo, um, that caused global oil prices to rise as high as 4% today, though that went, went back down a little bit. But people were concerned about a disruption in supply. Now, you have to remember, last month, uh, you know, last month there were four tankers attacked, and the U.S. blamed Iran for those incidents as well. And it is just based on the skill of these attacks, the technology and, and the weapons involved, that the U.S. assessment so far is that this is the Iranian regime. Now, this is where we start to have to get really concerned about what the future of U.S. policy against Iran is going to be. It comes also at a time when you have this effort to stop the sale of sophisticated billions of dollars of sophisticated weapons to Saudi Arabia, which is the only regional country that's in any kind of real position to push back on Iran. Saudis have about a $70 billion defense budget. And the Saudis, because Saudi Arabia is not just a, but in a sense, the primary Sunni majority state of the Muslim world. It's the place of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Uh, The Saudis have a historic and longstanding uh, animosity, you could even say hatred perhaps, of the Shia Iranian regime. And if we want somebody to be a counterbalance to Iran, it's going to have to be the Saudis. So that's why antagonizing the Saudis, whether it's over the war in Yemen or over the uh, really grotesque incident. But remember, he wasn't one of ours, and they lied about that for a while. Jamal Khashoggi, not a U.S. citizen, not even a permanent resident. The guy was here on a visa. So he's a for- Jamal Khashoggi is a foreign national. That doesn't mean what happened to him is okay, but it just means that that's not the United States government's urgent problem to deal with and fix. We, we don't change our foreign policy in response necessarily to what a foreign country does to a citizen of another foreign country. That's, that's not how this works. American citizens' interests come first in these situations. Uh, but the hitting of, uh, of an oil tanker, in the, this is in the Gulf of Oman, but it's, it's right, in, right in the same waterway, effectively, or right nearby to the, the Strait of Hormuz. And this is going to set everybody on edge. 
Because if the Iranians decide to go with the option that has been, I mean, I was writing assessments at the blaze on this going back now eight, nine years where look at the Iranian. I mean, I, I did whole, I remember this. And some of you who watched in the real news days know what I'm talking about at the blaze that I would, I would stand up and do maps because map time with Buck was always a big, a big hit in the blaze days. At least we thought it was. And I'd walk through why this Strait of Hormuz was such an important strategic choke point. Uh, it's because of the energy supplies that come out, um, come out of the Gulf. And if the Iranians decided to create not just the disruption in supply, but the attendant ecological disaster of a major series of strikes on it. I mean, oil tankers are like big floating target practice. You know, it's not hard at all for the Iranians to take them out. And as you know, one oil tanker uh, getting hit, you have environmentalists concerned about species die off and, and, you know, the, what it does to ecosystems in the water for who knows how long. What if you hit 10 oil tankers? What if you hit 20? And all that, all that oil, all those losses, what does that do to the global market? And what's really our response? What's our retaliation going to be? Now, I hope it doesn't go to this place, but it obviously could go to this place. And just by, I, I can't really show you, I was talking about maps. The Gulf of Oman is really the outflow area from the Persian Gulf. And the Strait of Hormuz is, is the place where you have this, uh, this tightening of the, the, the sort of a, a bottleneck effect between the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. So, I mean, this is right off the Iranian coast, though. I mean, Iran is all along this waterway and can very easily hit any number of uh, these ships and tankers with either marine naval weapons or uh, ground-based weapons, too. And there's not a whole lot that we can, we can do about it. Now, the Iranians are saying this is all suspicious and they don't really know. What they're hoping is to have some level of deniability. And this is a classic tactic in Middle East with Middle East regimes where we may know well and good that the Iranians are behind this, but they are going to say uh, that they, they had nothing to do with this. This is a false flag. This is uh, the, you know, the Americans looking for another WMD moment trying to attack Iran with any, you know, oh, this is all John Bolton and some kind of, uh, you know, some scheme, some plot that he's put uh, at work. You know, I also remember that it was, what, a week or two, you know, I forget when it was, it was a week or two ago when the administration was talking about how there's an escalation in the threat reporting coming out of this region and there were concerns that Iranian boats were being outfitted for attacks. And there were all these other reports that, that came out in the anti-Trump newspapers about how that was all lies and that intelligence doesn't really exist. And was it all lies? Does that intelligence not really exist? Uh, I think that we'd ha we might want to go back and revisit who was saying what to whom about all that. But Trump is willing to see this through. I mean, he, he completely rejects the Obama administration approach to Iran, which was appeasement, which was trying to find some means of getting the mullahs to like us more. Trump did not like that approach at all. Uh, here's what Trump says about how he deals with Iran. Play 15. 
Iran is not the same country. When I became president, Iran was a terror all over the world. They had just made this horrible deal for the United States, the Iran nuclear deal. And I became president and I terminated the deal and Iran now is in chaos. I still remember being on air at CNN and describing describing the transfer of uh, hostages for pallets of cash as paying a terrorist organization or paying a terrorist regime for hostages and having all these CNN analysts go, oh, no, this isn't this isn't. You know, it's a separate thing. It's money that was already owed to them. I mean, the mental gymnastics these people went through because they realized it looked really bad that the Obama administration was just handing, sending pallets of cash to the mullahs to give us back people the Iranians never should have had in the first place. You know, one thing that is very true across the Middle East is, you know, people see two horses, a strong horse and a weak horse. They go with the strong horse. Strength matters in the Middle East. This is it's not a region where play by the rules, fair play, uh, consideration for the other side is respected or, or is, is revered or even really considered to be necessarily a good thing in and of itself. It's all about who has the upper hand and who has strength and who shows strength. And the Obama administration constantly showed weakness on Iran. This is why they had to have Ben Rhodes and the other national security apparatchiks in the Obama administration tell and effectively using their own words here, you know, dumbass 25 year old journalists in D.C. who don't know anything what they wanted them to say. So they'd go out and say it about the Iran deal so they could get through a deal that was not in any way painful for Tehran and was ridiculous. And Trump recognized it as ridiculous. So now we're out of it. You know, the Europeans are all figuring out whether they're what they're going to do now, but it wasn't a good deal. It didn't deal with ballistic missiles. It didn't deal with terrorist activity. It gave way too much relief to an Iranian regime that just did not deserve it. And now we're at a place where the administration's got some tough choices to make. Because anything that uh, involves U.S. ground troops in the Middle East now, the Trump administration should think of it as a a, a true last resort. And I I do not want any of the neoconservative tendencies to all of a sudden overtake this administration. And we have this we have this premise that is uh, made to seem normal that if we can just get rid of the mullahs and maybe just take over Iran for like six months with 100 or 150,000 soldiers, we can make this great country out of it. No, no, no. We've learned that lesson in Iraq. We've learned that lesson in Afghanistan. We are not doing that again. So then you have to ask, well, what do we do? What is the response if the Iranians decide just to to completely? Um, and by the way, it would mean the Europeans would abandon the deal. But I don't think they're going to do this because the Iranian state, the economy is weak. Their military is good at, at asymmetrical and terrorist stuff, but not not a first world power by any stretch with the, in terms of their military. So how do we get them to behave and what are our options? General Jack Keane had some thoughts on on this over at Fox. Here's what he said. Play 16. More pressure that, that's got to bite more on them. They haven't changed their malign aggressive behavior. But a couple of things have happened. There, there's less resources that they're providing to their proxies, and it's their proxies who are propping up Lebanon, running the war in Syria, the civil war, running the war in, in Yemen as well. So that 
already is a significant improvement over where we are. But the, we got to continue the max pressure campaign to, to for sure here. It, it is absolutely critical. Now, I think the general's correct, although that may not be enough in and of itself. Yeah, we need to keep the pressure on. Okay, but that's what we've been doing. What if the Iranians step out of line and and cross the red line of blowing up tankers? Then what? Airstrikes? How many airstrikes? For how long? And what do we do if the Iranians then retaliate with? And this is these are all these are the old concerns. This is what people have been writing reports and assessments on stretching back for many years, for decades in some cases. What will Iran do when fully uh, boxed into a corner? This may, in a sense, be an indicator of how well the Trump strategy is working, that their behavior, you know, they're trying to see if we'll blink. They're trying to see if we will abandon the pressure campaign, if we'll decide that we don't need to do what the Trump administration has been doing. Essentially, people will get scared and say, oh, gosh, we don't want to, we don't want a hot war with Iran, so we better be the ones. America needs to be the one to back off. I think that would be a major mistake. I think that Iran has been a thorn in the side of America, Israel, and the rest of the world for far too long. The regime is an evil and illegitimate regime, and the pressure that we have on it is warranted. And we don't have to live in a world within Iran run by theocratic maniacs. We don't, we don't have to accept that. We've come to accept it, perhaps, whether intentionally or not, because it's been around for so long. But that doesn't mean that we have to really accept it forever. So tensions are very high. You'll see that headline. You'll hear people saying that a lot. It is true right now. But I hope that Trump stays the course because his instincts in dealing with the mullahs, I believe, are correct. Feds gone wild. DOJ's stunning inability to prosecute its own bad actors. This from my colleague, former colleague at the Hill, Mr. John Solomon. Oh, man, he, lo- he loves to poke the deep state in the eye with these pieces. It's really fun. Let's, uh, let- let's just get into some of the salacious details here on thehill.com, shall we? One was caught red-handed, engaged in nepotism. Another, a lawyer no less, admitted to shoplifting at a marine barracks store. A third leaked sealed court information to the news media and a fourth engaged in fraud by turning a government garage into a personal repair shop. Four cases all solved in the past month with suspects who cost taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars and significant breaches of public trust. But these weren't your everyday perps. All were U.S. Department of Justice employees who are supposed to catch other criminals while working for the FBI, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and U.S. attorney's offices. Instead, they broke the law or violated the rules and all managed to escape prosecution despite their proven transgressions. Recent Justice Department disciplinary files tell an undeniable story. The DOJ is doing a poor job of punishing its own. Uh, This is just one of these reads where... You see that the, the federal bureaucracies, for all their talk about being public servants and how they just they, they only exist, they only you know are around to do their best for America, to help the American people. For all of that talk, for all of that noise they make, they think they should live by a slightly or in some cases very different uh, set of standards. 
And this, this is a recurring theme today on the show. If we have double standards, we really have no standards. Because you either punish certain infractions a certain way because that's what's right, or you don't. And if you don't, well, then that's going to change the way people view all punishments going forward. Uh, the, the DOJ is a place where, you know, and I'll also say this, it's true not just the DOJ, it's, it's a lot of these government agencies. You will find that if you step out of line against the organization as one of their own, they will find ways to crush you and you'll be punished to the maximum extent allowed by law. But if you're just doing stuff that's embarrassing to the organization in order to protect the organization, you know, the, the, the DOJ and these others, they're almost like self-sustaining organisms, you know, self-interested organisms. So if you come at your home agency with uh, whistleblower stuff or you do anything like that, then you're likely to just get crushed. They will they will go into time and attendance fraud on you. There's some classic stuff they do, you know, to, to just make you a, sound like a criminal. But really, there's political or politicized reasons that they're trying to take you down. But if you just do stuff like, you know, watch porn for 12 hours a day in your office from your government computer, you know, maybe they'll give you a slap on the wrist, but they don't want to make a big deal of it because that makes the whole agency look bad. This is stuff that really happens, by the way. Uh, it's classic, though. Fed's gone wild. DOJ's stunning ability to prosecute its own bad actors. That's for sure. Man, John Solomon, that guy, he does not have any qualms about slapping the deep state across the face and say, what's up, deep state? Take that. I challenge you to a duel, deep states. Ha! We'll be right back. Mexico's moving 6,000 troops to their southern border. That's a lot of troops. If Mexico does a great job, then you're not going to have very many people coming up. If they don't, then we have phase two. Phase two is very tough, but I think they're going to do a good job. If Mexico does what they say they're going to do, it will be a huge help to what's going on in the border. These individuals are coming from these Northern Triangle countries primarily, but now from all around the world, as we've recently seen, um, coming to our border because they know that because Congress has failed to fix the loopholes in our immigration laws, that, that we can't detain them and they'll be released into our country. If they can't even get to the United States and have to remain in Mexico or get stock, stopped in Guatemala or somewhere else in the Northern Triangle, then yes, that's going to change the entire dynamic. It's a humanitarian crisis, it's a border security crisis, it's a public safety crisis. Unfortunately, Congress has failed to fix the crisis. And now, as we can see, going through the reprogramming issue efforts and the 2020 budget they propose, they're not even willing to fund us properly to manage the crisis. So without the money and the resources and no changes to the laws, this crisis is not going to abate itself. That was the ICE deputy director on the situation at the border and Mexican promises to take action to help out here. Remember what I told you last week? If Trump gets a deal and Mexico all of a sudden is going to be more helpful, you know what we're going to be told? Oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, Trump didn't really get a deal. Trump didn't get a win. Let's not get crazy. We knew it. You knew it. I knew it. They cannot, they cannot bring themselves in the press corps. The Democrats will not, to the point of denying clear, obvious reality, will not give credit to Trump for anything. What was the big uh, the big downside of his action? What was the big problem with him saying that we were going to put tariffs in place and that 
there was no big downside. It looks like there was a pretty big upside here. I mean, when I say there was no big downside, it managed to work. They didn't have to put the tariffs in place. That's, you know, a negotiation where you're not willing to take any risks is not a negotiation where you're going to win very much either. You know, this is a very simple formulation. No risk, no reward. Trump will take risks on policy where he thinks it's necessary. And 6,000 troops to the Mexican southern border, which is the border with Guatemala, that could really help. If Mexico stops people from getting into the United States from Central America, then at least we don't have to worry about the giant loophole in our law that Congress won't fix that says if you're from a non-contiguous country, you will not be able to be uh, immediately deported, which is a huge, huge problem. And, and the scope of this problem, we're finally at the place where no one can deny that this is a, a massive issue and there's a lot of stuff that needs to be dealt with here and fixed. Um, but when we think more about what the media has been willing to say about this and how they've acted in the past, I mean, I think we've got to understand here quite clearly that they've been lying. They've been lying about this. I mean, here's a DHS chief just making it, making it, as straightforward as possible. What's going on here? Play 13. I want to make clear that this crisis is unlike anything we've ever seen at our border. And it, in large part, is due to the gaps in our immigration laws that are driving it. Any of our men and women on the border can tell you that DHS facilities are overflowing, that our resources are stretched thin. Yep. All of that is true. This is a, a serious crisis. This is a problem that will not solve itself. The Trump administration is taking action, is taking pretty dramatic action, in fact, in order to make something happen here. And if judges don't stand in the way, I think that we'll be in a, we'll be in a better place pretty soon. I think the Mexican government knows that Trump is serious about it. Look at the China tariffs. Oh, he'll never do it. It's a trade war. It's a bad idea. Oh, actually, he will do it. And he has done it already. And this is one of the biggest gambles on trade and the economy that any, any president's taken in a long time. But Trump really believes in this. But to give you a sense of the dishonesty in the way this issue is reported on, uh, Representative Dan Crenshaw point, uh, has, has pointed to the way that Time Magazine and The Hill, where I used to work until a week ago, the way that they have reported on the migrant crisis recently involves things like this. The Hill tweeted out the Trump administration is sending migrant children to the former Japanese uh, to a former Japanese internment camp. And this is meant to get people to completely I'm, I think that they're uh, citing the Hill, the uh, time report here in the Hill, though. So it's really a Time magazine report. Uh, I don't think that this was original reporting from the Hill. And yes, the, the Fort Sill, this is reported by. So the, so the Hill is, is getting is getting hit here, but they're just reporting on a report. It was Time magazine that said, oh, my gosh, Fort Sill. This is where the, there was a, the internment of Japanese Americans. And so this is a terrible thing. Dan Crenshaw understands that the people who are reporting on this as such, this is a bad faith reporting job from Time Magazine. And Time Magazine is is just a left-wing rag. And I think a lot of people are surprised that it still exists in any capacity, but it certainly does. Uh, but here's Crenshaw on 
saying on Time Magazine, saying that these migrant children are being sent to the same place as the as the uh, interned Japanese were. Play 14. And this is another example of the media. This was Time Magazine. I think The Hill reported this too. They have a headline that says, uh, you know, the administration is putting kids uh, where we used to put, uh, where we used to have internment for Japanese Americans during World War II. The implication, of course, that they're going for is that, oh, we're putting people in concentration camps. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. This is a military base. We are looking for places to house kids in a humane way. It's nonsense. It's used for something different now. It is not a concentration camp. It's not even close to that. They've said that they're going to open it up to media and let people come look at it. You can make your arguments without being so unbelievably dishonest, but they just can't help themselves. How are we supposed to trust members of the media when they put out stories like this? I just can't believe it. How are we supposed to trust them? Good good question, Congressman Crenshaw. Uh, we're not supposed to trust them, though, or we should not trust them. Uh, the Trump administration to send migrant children to former Japanese internment camps. That's a Time Magazine piece. And what you find out if you read down a little bit is that, oh, wait, the Health and Human Services Department under the Obama administration also used Fort Sill as a temporary emergency shelter for children detained at the border. That's right. The Obama administration sent children to this site. Did anyone ever say in the media Obama sending refugee kids to same place used as Japanese internment camp? No. That was never. Why is that, folks? Why did that never come up? Why was that never said? You know the answer. It's just fun to ask the question rhetorically, isn't it? No. And then you have uh, the other reality that Fort Sill is a very large U.S. military base and has been in continuous operation, I think, since the mid-19th century. So a lot of stuff goes on at Fort Sill. A lot of stuff happens there. You know, I'm I'm going to New York City this weekend. I'm going to be in New York City for the weekend to visit family and be with my my pops for Father's Day. And you could describe that as, you know, uh, Buck Sexton going to the city stolen from Native Americans for uh, like whatever it was, a few dozen dollars in some wampum or something. But that's kind of a weird way to describe it, is it? I mean, a lot of other stuff has happened in New York since then. And if you described it that way, out of nowhere, wouldn't that tell everyone a lot about what you are, you know, you have some agenda? You know, Buck Sexton heading to stolen Indian land for the weekend, also known as New York City. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I guess it's technically true, but it's not really how I would think of things. You know, this is the absurdity of the media, though. For them, accuracy now turns into, uh, you know, any any question, who's this person? You could say someone who's never been in my kitchen. Remember that from was that Norman Cheers? I've said it before the show. I forget. Technically true. You could say that about any number of people. Someone who's never been in my kitchen, but it doesn't really tell you much. That was him doing Trebek. That's that's right. That was in uh, SNL, I think, right? Yeah, no, that was that was in uh, no, that was on the real Cheers. I think he was on, right or no? I thought it was him when he was playing Alec Trebek on uh, was SNL. Celebrity Jeopardy. I think it was on the real Cheers. I don't know. Oh, was we'll it? We'll we'll track it down. We'll track it down. Oh, speaking of track it down, track us down in a second. We'll be right back. What is going on in the Dominican Republic? I've been to the DR a few times when I was very young. I barely remember it. I went with my family. I think I went once or twice. Maybe it was twice. Uh, 
and it's getting all this attention for all the wrong reasons these days. This is Fox News Today. Is in the spotlight because there have been a, a series of deaths for this year to last year. At least six American tourists have died on vacation in the Dominican Republic. And some of them in really suspicious and weird circumstances. Um, here you had uh, David Harrison, 45, of Maryland. This was last summer. Checks in the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Punta Cana. He and his wife are there with their 12-year-old son. After several days, Harrison starts to feel ill. The next day, after lying in bed, still not feeling well, he decides to join his wife in the hotel casino. He notices a strange smell. Very spo- oh, sorry, the wife notices a strange smell coming from her husband. He begins to feel ill, returns to the room. She calls for an ambulance, and he dies. Well, they said he had a heart attack, but her husband was very fit, very healthy person. And the, a bunch of these, a bunch of people, Americans, have all died of these same causes or, or similar circumstances that are very sketchy. Producer Mike, do you have a theory on this? Have you ever been in the DR? Producer I Mark? I have not been in the DR, and I don't think I'm ever going to go. This is not making me want to sign up, I've got to no, say. And I feel bad because it's one of these countries where about 20% of the entire GDP, 20% yeah. of their whole economy comes from tourism. So, yeah. I mean, if tourism starts off, and you think about Aruba, which is a place that I've been to, which I will tell you is gorgeous and a basically stress free vacation in terms of it's incredibly safe. The water is clean. There's no crime really. The, the doctors on the island are, are like Dutch trained and excellent. And yeah. like it's a very orderly, clean place and it's beautiful and like the food is great. You know, they lost Nat- like Natalie Holloway got killed basically by this by that psycho and people didn't want remember that by the way Greta Van yes. Suster I remember being yeah. in what was it high school or something mm-hmm. and Greta Van Suster well tonight we've got updates on Natalie Holloway you know the, yeah. every night it was like a Natalie Holloway update and you know the tourism dropped off after that dude people didn't want to go yeah, I don't blame them this is one that's just one event and on top of everything you're mentioning in the DR um, Big Poppy got shot oh that's right yeah. It was you know like, about sports. I mean, they, yeah. I, I saw the headline. They they paid, yeah, eight thousand. They paid the hitman eight thousand dollars. Yeah, it was like an, there's like, it was an, definitely an assassination attempt on him, and he was. Who I would think want it was to about, assassinate Big Poppy. I don't know, man. He's a lovable guy. I don't even get it. That takes a lot for me to say about a Red Sox guy, but you gotta love. Big I was Poppy. gonna say. I mean, you're a Philly guy, and yeah. even you respect Big Poppy. That's just yeah. crazy. Someone's gonna try to they shot the guy in the back. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Eight thousand dollars, but you know what's what's really scary is when you look at the stats for how uh, how little it costs usually to pay for a, a hit on somebody by, by the numbers. The lowest ever in the world uh, in, in the kind of open, black, well, not open, but in the in a consistent black market, I read was at the height of the violence in, in Juarez, the average hit, I mean, the average cartel hit on a person was uh, the, the hit man was paid $70, which is just astonishing. Wow. That actually came from a man, Yon Grillo, in one of his books. I was like, wow. 70 bucks, dude. 70 bucks. Somebody will walk up and just pop somebody. No, no questions asked. Think about that. Crazy world, right? I mean, 8,000 is still, I mean, first yeah. of all, who, who goes and shoots somebody they don't know under any circumstances? Right. $8,000 seems like a shockingly low figure to go and, and, and shoot any human being in the back. But uh, and then you add into that, this guy's incredibly famous. You're obviously going to get caught and go to prison forever. It just seems, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know if, if Big Poppy had some like sketchy associates or something. I haven't seen anything about that though. But really bad press for. And I, I was looking to maybe go away for a week in the summer to a beach somewhere. Yeah. And I feel bad. I think Dr. Dude low on the list right now. Yes, go to New Jersey, much safer. 
Jersey Shore. I don't know. Is Jersey Shore safer? I don't know. I don't know, producer Mike. Coin flip, maybe. Yeah. What's the closest? What's the closest beach to Philly? Where do Philly people go to the beach? So we're, we go, yeah, South Jersey. We'll we'll head down the Atlantic City Expressway, and instead of making a left and going north, we'll go uh, south in uh, Avalon, Stone Harbor, Cape May. Um, you know, you know, nice we like to, you know, we like to call that. What's that? Classy. Yeah. It's damn right. <laughs> it's classy. That's how it's how we that's do how, it on the weekends. That we do exactly. Yeah, yeah. Here in D, everyone's got their little weekend getaway stuff on the East Coast. DC, it's all Maryland Shore, pretty much. Right. People got, and then of course in New York, it's out east, which is a fancy way of saying yeah. Long Island and the Hamptons. The Hamptons. Um, but you've got to. I mean, if you're not taking a helicopter, you better be ready to sit in traffic for a very long time. But anyway, what's the next? What's the next beach destination on producer Mike's radar that is not the Dominican Republic? Yeah, I think I'm going to go actually to Cape May um, at some point this summer. Uh, I haven't been there in a while, so I have a friend who. Uh, Lives down there, and I think I'm going to go do a little uh, Cape May action. Just a question. Producer Mark, did you get the invitation from Producer Mike to his little <laughs> beach jaunt? Because I did not. I did not either. And no. I, I'm, the, I'm the host. You're the technical producer. I feel like you know we should be at least notified when the beach party happens. Hey, man. I'll send pictures. Let it, there, yeah, there we go. <laughs> now, we, now you all know when Producer Mike isn't here, he's setting up the real, the real attendees, the female attendees for his beach parties. That's whatever I call out his name, and he's not in the studio. We know we know what's actually what's actually going on. Lies, Buck. That's lies. It total lies, man. No, K, K May. I actually I was trying to get down to DC once a long time ago, and I got stuck. I missed the last ferry out of uh, Cape May, New Jersey. Yeah. And and if you miss that ferry, and it's a, a holiday weekend, oh yeah, you have to drive all the way like around. up north and around and it's nightmare. a total nightmare yeah. so we actually ended up crashing it's a really cute little town i liked it yeah it's nice it's 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 clean it's fun it's um yeah really good restaurants really clean beaches it's nice. what's the best beach you've ever been to since we're in the sort of summer season here people thinking yeah. about maybe getting away for a weekend best beach you've ever been to in the united states uh, in the u.s okay yeah. well, i probably would say uh i recently was in san diego and was at the hotel dell and uh, it, it was beautiful there. Uh, I'd say their beaches were really, really nice. San Diego's great. I don't yeah. know why more people don't live there. It's I know. fantastic. It I mean, it, I feel like it's, you know, you think L.A. is so much more overcrowded, it feels oh, like, than San yeah. Diego. And the beach in San Diego is way better than the beach in L.A. Absolutely. It's quiet. There's not a whole lot of people. Um, you don't have to deal with any of the, uh, the riffraff that you do up north. That's really a trick question, though, because the answer to what's the best beach in the United States, in my opinion, it always has to be something in Hawaii, but people don't think oh, of yeah. that right away. Nice. Yeah. yeah, Florida's nice. I like Palm. Mark, what, where do you weigh in on this one? I mean, I haven't been to many beaches outside of New York, so I'm going to have to go with the one that's a block from my house in Long Beach. Oh, look what he just did, dude. Oh. He just Bigfooted us with the beach. I can a go block, anytime. Oh, yeah. A beach a block from his house. Yeah. He's like, you suckers have to drive or fly. Yeah. I just roll out of bed and go to the greatest beach ever. Yeah. Producer Mark for the win. I got to say, buddy, you came through there in the clutch. Look at that. You never become the best at anything by facing a mediocre opponent. The person you're really competing against is yourself. Through adversity. That's when you learn who you really are. The guy you were last time isn't the best version of you. The guy you are now is. I would just tell people, and I do tell people, just get out and try it. It can be super scary, but there's so many connections, friendships that you can make through adaptive sports. How far can you push yourself? How far can we set that bar for you and your teammates, but also for those who are coming up behind us? If we explore and push the limits right now, how much further can we put this thing in the future? Push your limits and bring it. 
you may not feel like you are like everybody else, that's okay. Keep pushing forward. See where the road will lead. You may not feel like you're perfect, but that doesn't mean you can't be who you want to be. That is some uh, promotional video from the Warrior Games. Warrior Games are the Olympics for uh, wounded and uh, sick veterans. I want to bring on some folks who can tell you exactly what this organization, what this athletic competition is all about. By the way, June 21st to 30th is in Tampa is when the Warrior Games occur. To tell us about this, we have Israel Del Toro, an Air Force Senior Master Sergeant, Army Colonel Kerry Harbaugh, Director of the Warrior Games, and Travis uh, Clater, Director of Communications for the Warrior Games. Travis, Kerry, and Israel, thanks so much for joining. Honored to be with Travis. you. Thanks for having us here. All right, so just give a little background. Uh, why don't we start with uh, with Kerry uh, for a moment here? Kerry, just give us a little background on how the Warrior Games uh, came together and, and what this is all about. Sure. Uh, Warrior Games have been uh, around now about uh, almost 10 years. It started off sort of as an intramural activity uh, with the Department of Defense partnered with the Olympic Training Center out in Colorado Springs. And we, we joked that uh, back then it was kind of you know, white T-shirts with our team names written in crayons on them because it wasn't wasn't much to it as we tried to figure out figure our way out of how to do a Paralympic event for our wounded warriors from all the service programs plus special operations were that fifth one, fifth program that the Department of Defense and Congress recognized. And so uh, it, it evolved over time. And in uh, 2015, we did the first iteration of a pure uh, DOD-run warrior game without the Olympic uh, Training Center's partnership. And we took that to uh, Quantico, and the Marine Corps were the hosts. Then it uh, drifted 2016 to West Point, the Army were the hosts. Uh, then to Chicago in 2017 with the Navy. 2018 out in uh, Colorado Springs with the Air Force. And then it was our turn, uh, the Special Operations Command. And we, uh, we turned to our community that we're closest to, because our headquarters is located there at MacDill Air Force Base in Florida. And we knew that we had an incredibly generous uh, community in the Tampa Bay area that really embraces uh, the active duty and veteran service members and their families, and that would be the perfect location for Warrior Games 2019, and that's what we've done. We've brought it in there. 300 athletes coming into town, 200 U.S., because each of the five programs bring in 40 athlete um, team size, and then uh, about 100 foreign partner athletes, because we've added to our games the foreign partners over the years, and we've got the U.K., Australia, uh, Canada, the Netherlands, and, uh, and Denmark all coming in for this with about 100 athletes total. Master Sergeant, uh, Master Sergeant Del Toro, if I could ask you, how, how did you get involved in this? Uh, well, I've been part of it since the beginning, back in 2010. Uh, I, was, I had just uh, finally re-enlisted, came back into the military, and the Air Force had asked me, would you participate in this to kind of show hope for other uh, service members who are injured, ill, or, or wounded. I mean, for the folks listening, Israel, what, what happened to you? Uh, I got hurt in December 2005. I was in an IED explosion. Uh, it, the bomb exploded underneath my Humvee, and I received uh, third-degree burns on 80% of my body, uh, lost fing my fingers on both hands, and uh, I'm sensitivity to uh, the heat and cold now because of the, the loss of uh, the two laser scan that I had. And you were able to come back from that injury uh, that you received while in combat and, and re-enlist and even compete in this athletic games? Yes, sir. Uh, so they gave me a 15% chance to survive uh, my injuries. And, you know, I was in a coma for four months, and 
you know, I woke up, they gave me the grim diagnosis, you know, never walk again, rest for the rest of my life. Military career pretty much over and be stuck in the hospital for another year and a half. And two months after they told me that, I I left that hospital walking and breathing on my own. And, and I wanted to continue to serve my country because people always ask me why. It's like you can retire, you make so much more money as a retired guy, but, you know, it's not about the money. I, I love my job. I love serving my country. I love being in the Air Force. I love being with my teammates. You know, I know plenty of people out there that have great paying jobs and they just hate their job. So why am I going to give up a job that I truly love? And so I fought and uh, February of 2010, you know, I became the first 100% disabled airman to ever re-enlist in the Air Force. And since then, I've just been pushing myself to trying to show not only service members who are hurt, injured, ill, but anyone out there in the world that's having a bad day and saying, man, you, you can get through this. Just stay positive, believe in yourself, and you will overcome it. And that's what I've, I've been doing since then. And Israel, I mean, this is all remarkable enough on its own and, and inspiring for everyone to hear, but you also now compete in athletic events. What What's your event? <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure right now because I think they might have signed me up for the ultimate champion, meaning I'll be doing like about 10 events. But uh, if not, I'll be still doing a lot. I'll be cycling, shooting, uh, shot put, discus, 100-meter dash, sitting volleyball, and powerlifting and rowing. Wow. I, I rode a little bit in college, so <laughs> rowing is uh, – <laughs> you got to really want to do it to be rowing. I yeah, I'm actually pretty sure. psyched at least the powerlifting because uh, just uh, the other day I, I did a new max at 250 pounds on the bench press. That's the most since – me being hurt, uh, uh, so that was pretty uh, remarkable uh, milestone. Well, congratu- congratulations on that! I think a lot of the guys listening are like, "Man, I got to get back to the gym." <laughs> Travis, uh, I want to ask you just for for everybody across the country who's hearing about this. A lot of them is probably the first time, although we have a really, uh, really large uh, current and former military listenership. Uh, but the Warrior Games for those who want to either be a part of it by showing up or watching it or just supporting. Uh, the Warrior Games and this this whole effort. What do people need to know? Sure. Well, like you mentioned, uh, the games start June 21st and run for the next 10 days. The biggest thing that we can ask people to do is come out in person. If you're in the area, if you're visiting Tampa in Bay. In Tampa, right? Yeah. Yep. So it's held down in Tampa Bay. Um, it's out in the community. It's free and open to the public. So the best thing you can do if you want to come out and support these wounded warriors, these heroes, uh, is come out to the events, come out to the athletic events and cheer them on. That's the biggest way you can show uh, show your support and honor these guys, um, these men and women. Um, so yeah, if you're in the area, uh, stop out. Uh, it's over the course of 10 days across uh, various venues. And uh, as DT was saying, um, a lot of different sports. So no matter what you're into from an athletic standpoint, uh, or if you just want to come out and support the military, there's something, um, some amazing competition to come out and watch. Um, if you're not in the area, it's going to be live stream. So we're live streaming most uh, about 80 to 90 percent of the athletic competition um, so you can log on to dodwarriorgames.com and you can see firsthand uh, the competition so you don't even have to live in the tampa bay area or be visiting the tampa area to see what's going on gentlemen thank you so much for telling us about the warrior games uh, master sergeant israel del toro army colonel carrie harbaugh and travis clater thank you so much gentlemen really appreciate your time and important work on this issue and uh, we'll be cheering for you thanks for having us on thanks sir thank you all right, team, we'll be right back. So what's going on with Justin Amash? Well, our friend David Harsandi's got some thoughts. He's written a piece on this. Meet Justin Amash. 
Never Trump's newest shiny object. David Harsani is a senior writer at The Federalist. David, great to have you back. Always great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, man. So just for by way of review, because I haven't really talked about Mr. Amash on the show in, in detail, why is he all of a sudden getting all this attention from the people who hate Trump? Well, he uh, a few weeks ago came out uh, in, uh, you know, he support, supported impeachment. I guess there was no particular bill, but just in general, he said that uh, the attorney general had misled the American people and that the president had obstructed justice. And he laid out his reasoning in, in tweets, and I think, on Facebook, as he does for all his positions. And uh, that if you want to impeach Trump, you are immediately elevated in you know by the never trumpers and democrats as a principled person and and possibly even the next president of the united states what exactly is you know there's justin amash is he's a libertarian but you know he, he's saying that the president of the united states should be impeached what what is libertarian about that i mean to me there's so much from the surveillance uh, surveillance operations there's a lot of police state uh, problems with what's going on here with the deep state and Trump and these people, the FBI and DOJ, who are clearly going after him. I mean, wh where's all the outrage from Amash about about that? Which is, I don't think that's what aboutism because that's central. To, he's saying he should be impeached. I'm like, well, look at the issue more holistically, and is the other stuff okay? I just want to know where Amash stands on this. Is, I mean, isn't he like Mr. FISA surveillance? By the way, or he's all concerned about this stuff? Well, I don't think he's looking. He looks at things holistically. Honestly, I think he's very um, tunnel visioned, bill by bill, things like that. And I just want to take a step back and say, I, I actually think he's a principled guy. I think his positions, to me, like I, I would like to see Justin Amash be a judge, not a politician, because I don't think he believes in any sort of incrementalism towards getting, you know, moving towards the goals that he wants, as far as libertarianism goes, or anything else. Um, so I, I do think generally he's a principled guy, I, which makes what you just said more confusing to me, because clearly as a libertarian, see, even though I've seen many libertarians abandon this, their big concern of the, uh, you know, all of a sudden they're less concerned about the FBI or the surveillance state than they used to be. But let's just say that having a administration using that, those mechanisms, you know, that that those institutions against another political campaign seems to me to be a far bigger problem than the supposed obstruction of justice, which is well within, which Trump, you know, was well within his powers to do, like firing the, firing his FBI director, et cetera. So I don't really understand that position. Um, but generally, I mean, I think he's been a pretty principled guy. So, you know, I don't really get it. What is he trying to accomplish, though? I mean, why be the lone Republican? Boy, people are now saying, who was it? Uh, one of these guys who's who's so not conservative that he can go on CNN and call himself a conservative, and CNN's okay with it. So whatever that means, he he he's saying uh, was it Lewis? Matt Lewis yeah, is Matt saying Lewis, that I think you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, the Daily Beast, uh, which you know, also known as Woke.com, that Amash should consider running for president. Well, here's the thing that bugged me about that is that. When you look at Amash's views on stuff, they are way outside anything a never-Trumper would ever kind of want to support, right? So, I mean, he doesn't believe in any kind of gun control, basically. He doesn't believe in any kind of, like, restriction, environmental restrictions. There's just tons of stuff. He's, he's you know, he has a little So he actually has some pretty cool positions, what you're telling me. No, <laughs> Justin you. Amash is like, is like, Buck, you can get that RPG you've always wanted. Absolutely. Like, 
So in in my so I live in two worlds. My you know as a columnist, I can be all principled all the time and, and stuff like that. But I'm also a realist, right? You're not going to get certain kind of legislation. It's not going to happen. You have to work within a system when you're a politician. It doesn't mean you give up and surrender all the time, but you have to be realistic. And nothing he believes in is sort of realistic in D.C. today. We are not in a libertarian moment. Whatever the opposite of a libertarian moment is, that's exactly what we're in. So, um, you know, his, his positions don't work that way. So. I, why he, did he do this? I don't know. Maybe he likes to be a contrarian. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe he really believes it. That, that's Listen, he may. The thing, though, is, you know, we can't be surprised if someone tries to primary him. They act like, they act like the Republicans are lockstepping behind Trump in some unprecedented way. No, this happens with every president. There, there was no never-Obama movement. That didn't exist. You know what I'm saying? So I think this president actually has to deal with more internal, you know, pushback than most. So... I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's one guy. That's it. <laughs> Look at you. you. We got a we got a political columnist here who's ending who's ending a uh, <laughs> ending a statement with I don't know. Well, look at this, I don't, I, this I, is an act of bravery, David Harsanyi. This is active. <laughs> so so much principle going on here. Speaking of principle, I'm gonna I'm gonna redirect this here for a moment. Uh, the the flavor of the day is. That Trump should have like called a five alarm fire and the FBI and everything else about the meeting at Trump Tower where nothing even really happened, and and I my favorite game of the day is ask a liberal how Christopher Steele, a foreigner, gathering information directly from Russian government sources, government agents, and government officials on Trump, knowing that this is during the campaign to hurt Trump. So you got a foreigner speaking to foreign government officials. And then running that stuff back to not just the press, but also our own government. How is that not foreign interference in the election? I get every time I bring this up, liberals start sputtering about things that are just non sequiturs. It's nuts. The position is nuts. I saw David Frum write, well, if Trump had sent an investigator to Moscow to look into stuff, that would be different. Now, can you imagine if Trump had sent a staffer to Moscow? During the election, what we would be talking about today, I mean, basically, a meeting that amounted to nothing in Trump Tower has ballooned into a giant conspiracy. If he had actually sent a staffer to Moscow, that would have been okay. If he had done what Hillary did, if, if, he, had, if he had worked through a law, he, like when he answered that question the other day, she said, sure, as long as you work through a lawyer uh, and, and, the, and the RNC and you get Kremlin sources to, you know, to, to sift it through some, you know, other you know, uh, oppo research firm, then it's okay, but I wouldn't take it myself. But yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's just, just strikes me as totally unserious. And, and I think no, that... But yeah, it's not even hypocrisy or whataboutism. First of all, these people want to be back in power, so it's not whataboutism. I'm talking about people who want to come back into power. But it's this, this idea that you can have two sets of rules for just because, you know, for both parties. You can't... You can't have government this way, you can't have a debate this way, and you can't have a society where there are two separate you know, sets of rules for different kind of people. Well, I think that's also what, what really gets to the, the heart of why so many people on the right are just, we're, we're, I mean, I, and I put myself in this category, we're just tired of it. And I know there's this, this you know, not, this inexact, and some are bothered by it, but this paradigm of, of wartime versus peacetime conservatism in the ideological spectrum right now and, and, the, and the fight between the two sides over what the future should look like. Uh, every time I have, a, I have somebody who used to be on the right start to tell me about Trump's obstruction, and then I ask them about anything Hillary-related, which involved the same, the same presidential campaign, and in fact, many of the same people 
instituting rules that are clearly a double standard, you know, at the DOJ, the FBI, uh, they act like this is somehow not a part of the conversation. And I, I just think that's bad faith. I think that's just indefensible. Yeah, of course it's bad faith. I mean, this the whole whataboutism charge is bad faith. Of course I want to know. I want to know if there was hypocrisy because I want to know what rules we need to be following. You can't simply can't do, you know, just, you know, throw that away because it's inconvenient in your argument. But um, I actually, you know, I have, I, I think it is shady to, to get, you know, to have a Russian give you information about another candidate. But anyone who's been in D.C. for 10 minutes knows well that there's all kinds of information being thrown around and it comes from all kinds of different places. And in the end, Hillary was much more reliant on Russian information, and the media was much more reliant on information that came from the Kremlin through Democrats than they were through Trump. So I, I, it, how can you have this discussion and ignore, ignore that fact? Yeah, it's, it just seems to me to be uh, completely bizarre. But everyone should check out what David's up to at thefederalist.com. Also follow him, David Harsanyi, at Twitter. He's a senior editor at The Federalist. David, great to have you, my friend. Thanks for making the time. We appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And if, if you decide to go a Mosh 2020, you got to come break that news on this show. I might. I might. All right, man. Thanks so much. Team, we'll be right back. Well, it's real simple. The Democrats are doing absolutely nothing uh, while the Mexicans are stepping up, working with the president to try and stop uh, the illegal flow of immigrants coming into the country. Democrats in Congress for the longest time refused to even acknowledge the fact there was a problem. Now we're starting to see them acknowledge there was a problem, but doing absolutely nothing to fix it, which may even be worse. Now they know there's a problem and they still mm -hmm. do nothing. They're so focused on attacking this president and trying to beat him up because they have no message, they have no agenda, that they can't right. even look at the real problems we have and do anything to try to fix them. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is fierce. She has been a stalwart in this administration. She's dealt with more than her fair share of Trump derangement syndrome-afflicted lunatics. She has had to just stand there and take uh, abuse in public while she's trying to have a meal. She's been really viciously ridiculed by the uh, entertainment industry and by the late-night talk show hosts and they're horrible to her, absolutely horrible to her. But she's stuck in there, and I have to say, she's one of those people who rose to the challenge. I did not think she was particularly strong in the role at the beginning. She obviously had had work to do on her on her presentation, and I think anybody who hasn't done that job would probably be in something of the same position, or if they, unless they'd had a really extensive interaction on camera and with the media, or in the media. Um, but I bring this up because the uh, breaking news here is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to be leaving the White House at the end of the month. That just uh, broke a little bit before we went on air. And uh, President Trump says she is going to go to her home, back to her home state of Arkansas. He did not name a replacement as of yet. She's been in the press secretary role since July of 2017. And uh, look, I, I think that her departure is something of a loss for the administration uh, because she was very solid and and really understood. Here's the thing. She knows who these punks in the media are. And she's not going through the, oh, no, I actually think they're great and it's fine. No, no, no. She knows they're punks. 
She knows the media is full of smarmy, self-indulgent, uh, Acosta clones. And she put Acosta in his place in ways that I think were particularly necessary. And I think that her adversarial relationship with the press illuminated for the American people, which is the most important thing, just how disgracefully partisan much of the, particularly the Washington press corps. You know, we talk about the media, and the media has so many levels. There's so many different components of the news media. You have local news, you have the national level networks, the major newspapers, but the D.C.-based Beltway, political, Capitol Hill, White House covering media is among the most self-righteous, perhaps is the most self-righteous, uh, feels like they're the ones that are truly uh, speaking truth to power when they're overwhelmingly doing the opposite. Whenever they can, when their people are in power, they're coddling power. They're giving back rubs to power. But they still think when they're doing that, they're being brave and they should be praised and we should all be thankful for the work that they're doing. They are, they are saving us from a, a lack of understanding, saving us from the ignorance of the American people or the ignorance that we would be awash in were it not for their efforts to constantly educate us. Um, but that press corps, Sarah Sanders, threw the occasional haymaker at, and it was fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it was necessary. I think that she's changed the game. Uh, I've only met her once, very briefly, but I was interested to know that she knew my name, which was pretty funny. I was like, oh, well, I guess she knows who I am. Uh, only met her one time. Um, but uh, she'll she'll be a loss to the administration, but we'll see who they replace her with. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders served Trump well, and uh, we wish her well going forward. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. You know how the roll call gets going. Mostly through Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That's how. So you can write me there. Let me know what's going down. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm right. Mostly where I'm right, hopefully. Occasionally where I'm wrong, just so I appreciate all the notes to tell me where I'm right. That's how we like it. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out, team. Buck. This is from Brian. Agreed on the Trump International Hotel Bar. It's a great vibe there with friendly people where I felt comfortable and a good refuge from the swamp people of D.C. Like you, I believe that barring a Great Depression-style recession, Trump will win in 2020, hands down. That said, one other factor can change this, and that's the liberal state and deep state efforts to eliminate our electoral college. There is some shady stuff going on as of late with leftists trying to eliminate significant votes in the middle of the country and assure liberal cities are the determining factor for 2020 elections. We have an electoral college for a reason, and more public attention and scrutiny needs to be brought to this. Both PragerU and Glenn Beck have been going into it in detail. We all need to speak out against this assault on our Constitution. Now, Brian, I mean, this is you're correct. and This is all very important. There really is an effort to tell people that the Electoral College is an anachronism. There's no need for an Electoral College. We should just get rid of it entirely. And the founders thought about this stuff in great detail uh, and were very aware of the need for and, and the uh, decision-making behind 
the system of checks and balances we have and the constitutional framework that our government uh, was constructed around. So, yes, it's true that there are libs now who are willing to change the rules and change any number of rules. I, I believe it, that there would be a liberal consensus if they could if they could pull it off, if they had the raw power, meaning the the seats in the House and, and the Senate, as well as the presidency, they would engage in uh, packing of the Supreme Court. And I think they would have no no qualms about it. I think they would absolutely go for it. So we need to be aware that the rules that we think we're playing by, even those rules can change. And those rules are not sacred to the left. John writes, would you be interested in a Star Trek Picard, Mr. Sexton? Um, I have no idea what you're asking me, really, other than I know that there's Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek. But thank you for writing. Jeremy Buck, I know you've delved in the background and history of the Middle East, but maybe it would be worth it to spend some time during a future show on the civil war in Yemen. On the tanker attacks that occurred in the Gulf of Amman, there's a discussion that Iran and Saudi Arabia are clashing over the civil war in Yemen. It seems like peace is nothing but a fairy tale in the Middle East. Shields high. Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy, a, a deep dive on the Yemeni civil war would probably be worthwhile. So I think a lot of the folks listening would appreciate that as long as it wasn't too long and it was jam-packed with information. So I will make a note of that. The very short version of a much longer story is that, yes, the Yemeni civil war is now a proxy battle and it is a Sunni Shia, uh, a, a part of the Sunni Shia fight that is roiling the entire Middle East and will continue to and really has been a, a bat, an ongoing battle in the Middle East since the 8th century or so. It's been going on for quite a while. Uh, yeah, the situation in Yemen. I mean, I, I was on Kennedy's show last night. We had a disagreement about this one. Sometimes we have a little bit of a feisty exchange on Kennedy's show on Fox Business. She thinks that the 7 billion, she at one point said 150 billion. I think she's referring to the amount of arms sales over the eight years of the Obama administration. Then you get into the $100 billion plus category, and that's coming up on a decade. But what's left now is a $7 billion sale that the administration, the Trump administration, wants to go forward with. And you have these senators who are saying, oh, no, no, don't do that. It doesn't really have any effect other than to make the senators who stand up and get to give a flowery speech about how Saudi Arabia is a dictatorship. Yeah, but are we not going to say they're an ally? Because they're an allied state. And if we're going to start telling allied states that they're terrible, but they're still our allies, we're going to have a lot of problems. And they're not going to stop what's going on. You know, Yemen is an extension of the Arabian Peninsula. Yemen is is a, a large country that borders Saudi Arabia. So we can say whatever we want about how we don't want there to be uh, civilian casualties in the in this fight. But Saudi Arabia is going to do what it wants to do here. Um, and we'd rather have the Saudis on our side, especially when we have to deal with the Iranians than the alternative. Uh, here we go. John writes, I listen to your show in the morning and usually enjoy a snack during it. Today, you played a clip of two idiots on CNN, almost breaking their arms, patting themselves on their backs about how they are the defenders of truth. I almost spit out my delicious orange and chocolate combo. Is it possible you could give us a little warning when playing clips from CNN? Well, John, no, I don't want to give you a warning because I want to make sure that, you know, you're uh, on your toes, my friend. I want you ready to rock. Once you already know what's going on, 
Uh, and that means that sometimes there's going to be some CNN nonsense on this show. That will happen. That is a real thing. So there you have it. Uh, here we go. John writes, hey, Buck, want to come to L.A.? Um, I like L.A. I don't know why asking me about L.A. specifically right now, but yeah. Or Oh, wait, L.A. City. What's that? Oh, Los Angeles Chocolate Convention. Now I know why you're inviting me. Man, chocolate's the best. Chocolate is my weakness. Well, I, I guess I have several weaknesses, but chocolate is high on the weakness scale. Wayne writes, Joe Biden says cure cancer. Sure, why not? I mean, we cured baldness. Check it out. Now, Wayne Biden, I meant to play that clip earlier in the week. I don't think we got to it. But yeah, Biden is now in this place where he'll just he'll say anything. I mean, he, he can get away with promising whatever he wants to because ultimately the media will cover for him. And that's just the way it's going to happen. Um, here we go. CK writes in, Buck, not sure if this is the right place for roll call. Oh, it is CK. But just heard tonight's show where you told somebody that Dalmatians have a bad temperament. Fake news. I've had approximately 24 Dals since 1980. And some were social butterflies, some more reserved, but none were mean. Such a false narrative spread. Who knows why? Dogs of all breeds are as good as their training and socialization. Join the Dalmatian Owners of America page if you want to learn more from longtime and new owners, breeders, and fans. Enjoy your show. Well, CK, you're dropping the Dalmatian knowledge here for everyone across the country to, uh, to hear. And uh, I, I can't say I totally agree with your all dogs are the same, which is how they're raised comment. Uh, some dogs, there is a biochemistry to these animals, and some dogs are going to have a higher tendency toward aggression than others. It is true that the way the dog is raised is the single biggest determining factor, but you've also got to take into account uh, the internal mechanics, if you will, the biochemistry of, of these animals, and you have a uh, lesser margin for error with some breeds than you do for others. And, you know, I'm, I was, I was going to go into a whole thing about how there's a new dog on my floor that's a poodle, and how I'm not sure that poodles should count as dogs. And then I start, and then I start trashing poodles. And poodle owners always freak out at being it. So because poodle owners are very devoted to their poodles. And when I say, well, why don't you guys do the thing where you shave them all funny with the pom poms on the legs and the and they say we don't do that. And you know, okay, but I'm just not a poodle. Guy. I'm just of the dogs. I like all dogs, but of the dog breeds out there, I think the one that I just I don't know. I don't really get the poodle thing. I, I the doodle thing I understand. They're a little they're a little more my speed, but the straight up poodle is oh I know they're so smart and everyone's gonna yell at me for you know, look, you you can like what you like. That's the good news. Different different strokes for different folks. Matt writes, Ain't no party like a Canadian society party for the study of education party. Matt, I don't know what you've uh I don't know what you've got in the I was going to say the breathalyzer. What's that? The, the vaporizer up in Canada. But uh, I could probably use some myself right about now. Let's see. Irene, any chance of you rejoining the blaze for a platform? More exposure. Um, Irene, I, I haven't spoken to my old colleagues at the blaze about that any time in recent months. Um, I will have a new platform this summer. I can't give you specifics on the details yet, but there will be. Cool new stuff happening in the Freedom Hut, and that is that is uh, for sure. 
That's definitely going down. And uh, yeah, and also I have a, a book that I'm in the final stages of signing off on the contract to write. So that should be happening and hopefully the book will be out by Christmas time. And uh, yes, I'm very much excited about it. Patty writes, I wish you were addressing Schiff's joke of a hearing. This is infuriating. Innuendo, hypotheticals, lies, all of Schiff's usual tactics. Yeah, I mean, Shifty Schiff is the sketchiest of sketchy. We all know this. So shouldn't be a surprise to anyone when it turns out that he's not, in fact, uh, on the up and up in these hearings. Paul writes, hey, Buck, someone mentioned books about bureaucracy on roll call the other day. I think the penultimate work on the subject is P.J. O'Rourke's Parliament of Whores. I'm assuming you've read it, but if you haven't, it is the most cynically honest take ever uh, on the slug-like workings of the U.S. government. It's fierce, fiery, funny, and accurate in an H.L. Mencken kind of way. For anyone trying to understand government, it should be required reading. Shields high. Well, you know, Paul, I've actually done a fair amount of work with P.J., um, we've done some uh, fireside chats together. I write for an online magazine that he edits called American Consequences. So I'm, I'm familiar with PJ's work, but I'm and I know PJ personally, but I have not read Parliament of Horrors. So that's quite a title. It's certainly uh, eye catching, but I will have to look into this based on your recommendations. Uh, let's see here. Mimi, Buck, I just completed a mandatory online HR course. I was appalled I've read sections on non-binary and microaggressions. Unfortunately, all the BS in the academic world has already infiltrated the business world. I'm glad I'm near the end of my career rather than the beginning. I'd find it really difficult to keep up the facade of all this political correctness. When I started, the HR thing was don't discriminate based on race. Now there are so many categories of protected classes it makes your head spin. The only endangered species that is not protected is white males. Uh, Mimi from California. Well, Mimi, yeah, it is true. Political correctness is now in charge of the uh, the corporate attitudes and, and, and companies across the country, which is certainly troubling, but it's one of the reasons why I support and like Trump. So I enjoy uh, enjoy that aspect of Trumpism is that he at least fights back. Team, I'll be in NYC tomorrow up in New York City. So I'll be doing the show from there. Freedom Hut United with producer Mike and producer Mark. Shields high.